Uh, well, that's, uh, I'm looking very much forward to, what's it called? Festival 08. Is that the official? Free Jesus. Oh, sorry. Free Jesus. I know, I'm an idiot. Well, there you go. Read Jesus. I just didn't know what to call it. That's going to, I think that looks very, very exciting. And if the uh, events are half as good as the video, I think we'll all be safe. Uh, well, let's pray and ask for God's strength as we uh, do battle again with Revelation. Father in heaven, we pray that you would be our teacher and guide. We thank you for this word of truth about life. We ask that you would strengthen us for your glory. Amen. I want to begin by asking you, what is the story that you tell yourself about how the world works? Uh, we're constantly inundated with stories. Stories are really the kind of currency of our lives and our minds. And here's a version of the story that you may well recognise. We live in a world that is getting better and better. It's been like that for centuries now, since the beginning of that great human enterprise known as science and its love child, Technology. By the careful application of science to technology, we've been able to beat back the boundaries to most of the problems that afflict the world and those we haven't conquered yet will yield to us before long. Sickness, poverty, ignorance, prejudice, superstition, religion, these are all falling before the march of progress and advancement. We live in good times unprecedented wealth and opportunity. It makes sense to eat and drink and be merry, to build bigger and bigger houses, to renovate until you drop and to not miss out on the great ups and upper-ups that are afforded by this expanding wealth of the world. That, my friends, is the story of modernism. You may have heard it. In fact, you believe it. You believe a large part of it. And the danger for us, of course, is that what we have is basically the story of modernism with a few Christian tinges around the end. There is a shadow version of this story, interestingly, which is that the very wealth that we're creating is destroying the world, that if we don't do something about it soon, we may do irreversible, permanent, human race-ending damage, and therefore we need to embrace action, radical action, before it's too late. That is the story of... Postmodernism. God's word to us today through his prophet and apostle John is that in fact neither of those stories are true. It's not that they're entirely untrue either. We do live in a world, or at least in this little corner of the world, that is by all historical standards incredibly wealthy. And at the same time we live in a world that's groaning under the weight of producing that wealth that doesn't seem to have the capacity to keep up with our demand for resources and that doesn't have a waste disposal unit that can cope with our carbon dioxide. Nonetheless, although there are elements of truth, actually those stories, the stories of progress or the story of disaster, modernism or postmodernism, they are more false than they are true. The story that is true about the world, about this world, about your world, is given to us in Revelation. That powerful, bizarre, messing with your mind, revelation of God. The re-engineering of your imagination. That's what the book of Revelation seeks to do. Re- 
construct your imagination. Last week, we saw the way that the world is. That the purpose of God who created, through whom all things have come into being, is to bring people to repentance. It won't happen merely through the ups and downs of life in this world. We saw that. But it will happen through the faithful witness of the church. A witness even to martyrdom. That's what happened to the two figures, you remember. The two, here we go, diving back into the imagery and symbolism. The two lampstands, who were two olive trees. That is the church in its role as witness, which was the content of the scroll, chapter 11. Remember that? We had a scroll that we've been pursuing its opening. Its opening has taken a long time through a bunch of popping of the seals, through a bunch of seven trumpets announced, And then finally the scroll is open and what is the content of God's purpose in the scroll? It is a faithful church witnessing to the power and love and grace of Christ even to death. Now, there is another version of that story which we can tell. We get a hint of it back in chapter 11 verse 7 where the metaphor, the basic storyline is described not so much in terms of witness but in terms of warfare. Now, as another version of the same story, it allows new truths to be brought out. And that's what chapters 12, 13, 14, 15 and 16 are all about. It's the same story as chapters 10 and 11, but told this time with a new metaphor governing them, the metaphor of warfare. It's a bit like on an overhead projector back in the good old days when you didn't have fancy things like this. You'd have an overhead projector and you could put an overhead projector slide on it And then if you're really clever, you could put another overhead projector slide on it which had new detail or new content and they would add to each other, not contradict, not go end to end, but add to each other. And that's what we're getting here in Revelation 12 through 16. You can tell that it covers the same time period as chapter 11 because the same period that's mentioned in chapter 11 is mentioned three times in these chapters. Remember what that time period was? A time, two times, and half a time, which is nearly a time, a time, a time, a time, and again, but a time, two times, and half a time. Or another way to say that is to say, anyone remember? 42 months. How many years is 42 months? Three and a half, a time, two times, and half a time, which is how many days? And how long has it taken in human history to do 1,260 days so far? About 2,000 years because it's a number in Revelation and therefore the last thing you'd be silly enough to do would be to think of it literally, isn't it? Come to a thousand next week. Um, It is the period that Daniel was uh, exposed to in chapter 12 and God gave him a revelation, but he didn't get nothing of it. it It was too spaced out for him. He understood nothing of it. He It was sealed for him. But he knew to name the time before the end as this time, two times and half a time. And John is saying what Daniel didn't understand and was sealed to him has now been unsealed, revealed. And I'm telling you about what it's like between the time of Jesus' first arrival and the time of his second coming, this time before the end. See the reference to this time frame in chapter 12, verse 6, and chapter 12, verse 14, and chapter 13, verse 5. So what I want you to do is sit back, close your eyes, actually don't close your eyes because you'll be reading, but kind of relax, let the book of Revelation do its job on you. 
of re-engineering your imagination and hear the truth about our world. Ready? Here we go. Chapter 12, verse 1. A great portent appeared in heaven. A monstrous woman. No, that's not what it says. A woman clothed with the sun. It's a pretty special woman. With the moon under her feet. She's very large. And on, this is, and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant. Crying out in birth pangs in the agony of giving birth. Then another portent appeared in heaven. A great red dragon. Seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. You don't wonder what the other three horns, why didn't they get a crown? But there you go. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to earth. Then the dragon stood before the woman who was about to bear a child so that he might devour her child as soon as it was born. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was snatched away, taken to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God so that she can be nourished for 1,260 days. Three characters were introduced in this warfare. A woman, a dragon and a son. Now I think the identity of two of these characters is clear. The son, we finally get something concrete and obvious in the book of Revelation. The son is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Hands up, you know what the reference is there. It is, yes sir. Psalm 2, good. So who is this son going to be? Jesus. That's pretty much a good answer actually. Anytime you're in a Bible study, Jesus, God or the Bible. Uh, and this son is snatched away and taken up to God and his throne for the 1260 days. What is that a reference to? Ascension of Jesus to the right hand of God for this period before the end. Now I think the dragon is likewise clear. Verse 9 identifies it as that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. Pause a moment here. Um, this has very little to do with the Simpsons and someone running around with a tail and a pitchfork. Uh, the Bible is entirely clear-minded on the question of evil. The Bible straightforwardly recognises that evil is a force, a power, uh, in some sense with an intent of its own which enslaves and dehumanises people. There is more to evil than the thoughts, acts and deeds and the omissions of human beings. If all human beings were sort of magically somehow to all fall asleep for the same four hours, right? there is still evil at work, is what the Bible says. You see this, this malevolent power. Uh, in, for example, uh, occasions like the madness of Rwanda or of Kosovo. A destructive tsunami, a rage against the goodness and grace of God who made us and redeems us, and the Bible calls this spiritual reality. Interestingly, psychologists and psychiatrists increasingly recognising that they can't speak the whole truth about a person's experience without reference to something beyond and outside them. More and more psychologists and psychiatrists are recognising that this is a reality, that there's more going on than just the person, but that there is this thing called evil, and the Bible names it the devil. And we get here a picture of the attack of this reality, this devil, this power for evil, the Satan, by its tail sweeping down stars of heaven to earth. 
Now again, if you try and work this literally, it's not going to work, is it? Um, stars are bigger than the earth. So if you had stars being swept down to earth, then it would have blown up the earth. So we wouldn't be here. I mean, it just won't work, will it, if you try and crunch it literally. Heaven is not up there. Because if heaven was up there, it would be down for America, wouldn't it? They'd have to go through the earth, down under the earth, up to heaven. So heaven's not up geographically. Heaven is up spiritually because it's a greater realm than us and you go from greater to lesser, you fall, but you don't move geographically anywhere. The fall of anything from heaven to earth isn't coming down out of the sky. Heaven is the realm of God's untrammeled truth and reality. The earth is the realm of Satan's rule. And um, what John has in mind here is a reference to Daniel chapter 8, verse 10, where stars represent uh, people, the people of Israel. And so the, the devil sweeping his tail and bringing stars from heaven to earth is a way of talking about the devil deceiving and leading astray God's people to bring them from heaven, that is love for God, to earth, that is deception and sin. We know the sun, we know the dragon. Uh, who then is the woman? Well, on the one hand, the woman is the mother of the sun. Who's the mother of the sun? Mary. At the same time, she's the church as a whole because she shelters in the protection of the wilderness just as Israel did in escaping from Egypt, but this time now for the 1260 days. So I think the image of the mother kind of morphs between Israel at one level, personified in Mary, who becomes the church. And you can do that with apocalyptic. You can't do it with video cameras, but you can do it with apocalyptic. And her work is done, you see. The Messiah has come. Verse 7. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back. But they were defeated. There was no longer any space for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Now again, you've got to work hard not to be silly about this. Hands up everyone who thinks that there is a dragon somewhere on the planet. Breathing fire. Of course there's not a dragon on the planet. The dragon is the devil. Why would we think that anything about this is literal? Um, This is not some subsequent moment to what has just been previously described. I want to suggest to you that the best way to read this is to again see that John is working with Daniel, this time Daniel chapters 10 and 12, who refer to Michael as the great champion of Israel, And what we're seeing here is, if you like, the heavenly counterpart of what happens in verse 5. This is not about some other thing happening other than the coming and triumph of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the great victory over evil, his death and his resurrection and his ascension to God, but it's depicted as Satan being thrown down like a great dragon. Or at least that's what heaven proclaims, verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven proclaiming, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah, for the accuser of our comrades has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God, uh, but they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not cling to life even in the face of death. Rejoice then, you heavens, and those who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you with great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. 
So what they're saying is, yes, the evil one has been defeated. Jesus' work has been done. He's ascended to heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's broken through death. He's uh, conquered sin and evil. But the battle continues until the end of the 1260 days. So chapter 12, verse 13, when the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she could fly from the serpent into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time. Again, did Mary sprout wings? That'd be cool, don't you think? I don't think so. From his mouth the serpent poured water like a river after the woman to sweep her away with the flood but the earth came to the help of the woman and opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from its mouth. I'm not going to explain that because I don't understand it. Then the dragon was angry with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her children, those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. It's worth saying that, isn't it? I don't get that. Uh, There's a reference there to something, I take it. But that reference is lost on me. And so there's no point trying to crunch something out of it if you just don't get it. Just let it go. The point, however, is clear. What it is to be someone who believes in Jesus is to be at war. That is the truth about your life. Good times with unprecedented wealth, maybe, at the edge. Bad times with the world going down the drain, maybe, at the edge. The truth, the central reality of your life, according to Revelation chapter 12, is that you are a soldier and servant of Christ. You are at war. And the sooner you understand that and the clearer you get that, the more wisdom you have in knowing what is the nature and content of the fight that you are in, then the more chance there is that you'll do well in this war. That is what Revelation is saying to us. We are at war. Make no mistake about it. You have to win fights and battles and kill and crush because it is a fearsome war. Check it out, chapter 13. Uh, Pick it up in verse 18 of 12. Then the dragon took his stand on the sand of the seashore and I saw a beast rising out of the sea having ten horns and seven heads and on its horns were ten diadems and on its heads were blasphemous names. The beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. The dragon gave it his power and throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have uh, been uh, received a death blow, but its mortal wound had been healed. In amazement, the whole earth followed the beast. They worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who's like the beast, and who can fight against it? The dragon takes up field position on the battlefield and is joined by a colleague, a beast. Now, we know from the book of Daniel what beasts are, don't we? What are the beasts in the book of Daniel, particularly chapter 7? Answer? Kingdoms. Kingdoms. Empires. Uh, The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Seleucids. But here, interestingly, the characteristics of all the beasts are combined into one kind of mega beast. It's got... um, Uh, It's like a leopard, but its feet are like a bear's and its mouth is like a lion's. I think what John is depicting for us here is empire as such. 
political authority and power per se, not as created. The state, says the Apostle Paul, is a gift from God to us as it's created, but the state as perverted. The state with the authority with the same ten horns and seven heads of the dragon. See, the evil one, sharing the authority and power of the devil. There's a small reference to one of the heads which seems to have been chopped off, received a mortal blow, but has grown back. That's clever. And um, that, I think, is a reference to a contemporary story about Nero, uh, who uh, committed suicide, I believe, and uh, was uh, reported to have come back to life. And, of course, in those days you didn't have uh, cameras and video and the internet, and so it's much harder to get good information. Now we've got cameras and video and the internet, and it's still hard to get good information because we have too much of it. But there you go. And the people of the earth are amazed and give to the beast and the dragon that which should only be given to God. In a parody of the songs of heaven, you see, they sing, who is like it? Who can fight against it? And it makes terrible war on the saints, this beast from the sea. But the call, says the Apostle John, is to understand and to persevere. For we know that Satan has been defeated in heaven. Now it's worse, because this beast from the sea is joined by another beast from the land. Then I saw another beast, verse 11 of chapter 13, that rose out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast on its behalf, and it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound has been healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in the sight of all. And by the signs that it is allowed to perform on behalf of the beast, it deceives the inhabitants of the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that's been wounded by the sword and yet lived, and it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast could even speak and cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So here is a terrible trio. This is this sort of battlefield on one side. The bad guys. The music, if it was an American movie, would be sort of slow and dark, just to make sure you knew who was on stage. This is a pretentious, anti-holy trinity, you see. It's not accidental that there should be this trinity. The dragon, the beast from the sea, and the beast from the earth. Three figures, but I think referring to one reality. This time the beast from the sea represents the state, if you like, in its bedeviled form as a centre of worship. Worship is the task of this beast. It looks a little like the lamb. What do people do to the lamb in heaven? They worship it. It performs great signs, this beast. It gives breath to the image of the other beast, just as God gives breath to the first human beings. Its goal is worship. What John is saying to a context in which the Roman emperors were demanding at the point of a sword with military authority unprecedented for centuries, demanding the worship of the emperor as the son of God because he had deified the previous emperor, his father, John is saying this is the nature of our battle. We call the state in its kind of worship demanding form ideology particularly political ideology. This is not a reality that is very far from us. Uh, That can be in the form of left-hand politics. 
where the state seeks to make all your decisions for you because it is the great provider of life. Uh, my wife is listening to the audiobook of Mao's Last Dancer, a very interesting uh, description of growing up by a man who's in his, I think, late 40s or 50s now, growing up in China. And the kind of the astonishing um, invasion of the state into the lives of, of every one of the billion Chinese people that they just snatch people away, worship. I mean, not, not, in, not in a crude sort of form, but in an ultimate form, worship effectively demanded of the people by the state. When you learn to write, what you learned to write was, I love Chairman Mao. We all love Chairman Mao. You love Chairman Mao. Chairman Mao saves us. Chairman Mao saved me. Effectively, it's worship, you see. And, and you, you see this in the sort of political ideologies of the left, or the right for that matter. It's sort of nonsense that says that you're an individual, that there's no such thing as community, that you are the source and centre of all life and reality, that you determine as a morally autonomous person what your values are, what's right for you is right for you, and what's wrong for you is wrong. It's just nonsense. Or the kind of bloodless market economics and democracy. Very interesting, isn't it? At the moment, we're debating whether to have a Bill of Rights in our country. And you might say, oh, yeah, great idea, Bill of Rights. And Revelation says, no, think harder. Ask at least the question. I mean, you may come out with an answer that says no, but ask the question. What is a place of a Bill of Rights without any acknowledgement that it's God who gives dignity to human beings with both rights and responsibilities? You won't see a Bill of Responsibilities that there are entitlements and obligations is a Bill of Rights. The contemporary version of the beast from the earth. Now I'm not saying it is, I'm just saying ask the question. Don't just buy blindly the stories of our age which say, oh yeah, human beings have rights and we should preserve them. Is that true? Or is that so untrue that it's worth not doing? Because there's something much more true to say. Now John identifies this power in his own day, verse 18. This calls for wisdom. Let anyone with understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a person. Its number is 666. This beast has a number, as a number of things have had a number in uh, Revelation. Um, I think on the one hand the best way to approach the number 666 is to notice what it does. It is a parody of God and his perfection. The number of God is 7. The number of God in his perfection is, if you like, 777. What is that which reaches to be God but fails entirely? 666. Thinks but fails. And so in a sense, the number 666 uh, may not have a meaning, although it does have a referent. It is the number simply for the beast. But at the same time, it's worth noticing that just like in some cultures today, uh, letters of the alphabet can be assigned numbers and you could work out what your number is Andrew. Well, I don't know what my number is actually, but you can work it out. You know, assign each letter of the alphabet a number, add them up, and if you get the name Nero Caesar and add up its numbers, it comes to, guess what? 666. Now, these terrible forces in the battlefield are met by two other forces. 
opponents who will triumph. Chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and there was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. And with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Here are the good guys. The music, it brightens up, it lightens up. Up we go, woo! 144,000 marked as God's own beside the Lamb, and they're ready for battle. Verse 4. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. These follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They've been redeemed from humankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found. They are blameless. Suddenly we see who are the ones that make it to heaven. It's 144,000 virgin men. Tough like girls. And I've got kids, so you and me, we're, we're gone. This is apocalyptic. It doesn't work like that, does it? Who are the 144,000 virgin men? Well, they're the whole church. You guess, I guess, you girls have never thought of yourself as a virgin bloke, but there you are. That's you, right here in the book of Revelation. Why virgins? Because Israel's soldiers, as they went to prepare for battle, would dedicate themselves to God and as a mark of that dedication would abstain from sexual relations with their wives. Here it is a picture of complete dedication, total virginity altogether, arrayed for battle, pure and holy in their mouth, no lie was found, they are blameless. So here's the battle. On the one hand, the the unholy trinity. On the other hand, the lamb and the church and some angels. You see, what is the nature of the battle? What is God's purpose? It's interesting, isn't it? Where's the rest of the world in this story? You've got the dragon, the beast and the beast. You've got the church. Where's the world in the battle? Where are are other human beings? Well, they are those whom the dragon and the beast seek to deceive because the nature of the battle is not a battle to spill blood, although we'll see metaphorically blood spilt. The nature of the battle is to win people's souls for eternity and glory. But you can't really depict that in a kind of battle moment. How do you show someone stabbing someone with a sword saying, ha-ha, I've just saved your soul? That's not quite how it works. And so you have a new character enter into this battle. Uh, It is these angels, and what these angels do is proclaim the gospel. Verse 6, Revelation 14, 6. Then I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth. Here we are, to those who live on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory for the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Here's the command of the gospel, to fear God. To worship him, not the false gods of the beast and the dragon. But with the gospel invitation also comes the announcement of gospel judgment. Verse 8, then another angel, a second, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The angel announces how the battle is going to work out. Babylon, the great ancient city of authority and destruction and evil, now representing, if you like, the beast, that great city will fall. And so will those who have worshipped the beast. Chapter 14, verse 9. Then another angel, a third, followed them, crying with a loud voice, Those who worship the beast and its image and receive a mark on their foreheads or on their hands, 
They will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured unmixed into the cup of his anger. They will be tormented with fire and sulphur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Church in Turkey, the state is calling for your worship. You're hauled off one evening when you're about to settle down to dinner in front of your kids into the square in the middle of the town. There is a statue of the emperor and you're told on pain of death with soldiers very comfortable at just cutting your head off right there. You're told to worship the emperor. Acknowledge that there is only one saviour of the world, only one son of God. There ain't Jesus. What do you do? What are you going to do when we get to re-Jesus? You're going to just kind of hide Keep your religion private because that's what religion's for. Comfort for spiritual morons like you and me. But for sensible and mature adult people like the intelligentsia of this university, just a thing of the past. Are you going to be cowered into silence? Are you going to confess Christ boldly? and Suffer even terrible things like scorn of your peers? Or the execution of of your friends. You see, the issues that Revelation is wrestling with are very serious issues. John says, eternal destiny hangs on it. And the purpose of God is that the world will be saved through the faithful, suffering witness of his people. If you don't suffer in Read Jesus Week, if you don't get given grief, if you don't have a hard time given to you, then you're just not trying. That's what it's about says Revelation. That's how it goes. What happens to the witnesses in chapter 11? They get killed. This is always, always how the church grows, how God's purposes are fulfilled. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And the question is, will you buy the story of our culture, which says keep your nice little religious fantasies to yourself. Just do your kind of pleasant middle class thing as we ride the wave of economic prosperity, buy nicer and nicer clothes and shoes and cars and houses and mind your own business and forget that God is real. Is that the story you're going to live by? Or are you going to have your imagination reconfigured piece by piece, taken out, fixed up and put back by the book of Revelation to actually see what is happening out there? Will you take the red pill? It matters. Chapter 14, um, uh, verse uh, 14 uh, says that there is a great outcome for the witness of God's church. The Son of Man comes and reaps a great harvest of glory for himself. Use your sickle and reap for the hour has come because the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. Remember the 144,000 are the first fruits of the earth. What happens in the first fruits? Well, what happens is the second fruits. And the purpose of the church, the 144,000, is that it witnessed so that there is a, a great harvest from all nations. But then there is a terrible, terrible alternative for those who will not hear the gospel of the angels. Then another angel, chapter 14, verse 17, came out of the temple in heaven. He too had a sharp sickle. Then another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over fire, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, 
Use your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine for the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle over the earth and gathered the vintage of the earth, and he threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God, and the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for a distance of 200 miles. Terrible judgment. The wine press of the wrath of God. The blood flows six foot high for 200 miles. Destruction. This is what is at stake in our witness, even our witness to suffering. Now chapter 15 describes uh, the sort of in more detail these two outcomes. On the one chapter 15, on the one hand, is a song of joy for those who are saved, who uh, sing for Jesus uh, and his great triumph. Great and amazing are your deeds, uh, Lord God, the Almighty, just and true are your ways, King of the nations. All nations will come and worship before you. Chapter 16 depicts the, the other side, the terrible seven bowls of God's judgment. Why bowls, do you think? Because what do the bowls hold? Blood. The wine press of God's wrath as they poured out on those who will not repent and who will not repent and who will not put the Lord Jesus Christ at the centre of their lives. What are we to make of this picture of warfare today? Well, you need to know where you are, don't you? We, we're, not, we're not at Duntroon anymore. We're not in the training ground. We're not at peace. This is war. I doubt it in the first century they were under any illusion. The problem is it's so easy to think that all is rosy here, isn't it? And you need to be uh, fully armed with a wartime mentality. You walk out the door and you're on. You're alert, you're trained, you're vigilant, you're competent with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left, taking every thought captive to Christ, as the Apostle Paul puts it. Don't, don't get this wrong. It's on. Switch on. Know who your enemies are. The, the person who, you know, across the room who made a fool of you in class? No, it's not the person. Your enemies are spiritual enemies. Enemies not of flesh and blood, but the devil himself, the way that the devil corrupts power and worship, particularly through the political pretension and ideologies of our world that tell us the stories that will lead us to hell. So we need the wisdom which is from above to identify the forms that these enemies take in our world. Know, thirdly, that what is at stake in this war is people's eternal destiny. So it matters that you fight well, that you pray for the salvation of people, that you live a life of holy dedication to God, blameless like those 144,000 with no lie in your mouth. And you can do this because chapter 12, victory is assured. The way that you can take your place in the battle is knowing that Satan has been cast out from heaven, that victory is through the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And so you will never, ever, ever give up. Nothing, not even 
for the sake of saving your own life is worth it in order to fail in this battle. For it is by our witness, even unto death, that we conquer. Let's pray that that would be true of us. Father in heaven, you've given us so much and we thank you for the blessings that we enjoy. We pray that you would not allow us to be deceived about what life is really about. Lord, strengthen us that we would be your faithful soldiers and servants for our lives end.